Sessions. This is the Sound on Sound podcast. Hello and welcome to the SOS podcast, brought to you by the writers of Sound on Sound magazine. I'm Chris Mays-Wright, SOS News Editor. Coming up, we'll be discussing some of the new gear from the NAM show with Editor-in-Chief Paul White and Technical Editor Hugh Robjohns, as well as answering technical questions posed by SOS readers. Also, we're finding out what's got Features Editor Sam Ingalls excited this month and talking to regular contributor Mike Senior about his article on Phase. But first, let's get a round-up of the news. news. Moto have announced version 6 of Digital Performer, their door package for Apple Macs. New features include a built-in convolution reverb, improved support for audio units plugins, and a new mastering limiter modelled on the Teletronics LA2A. Moto have also launched their third revision of the 828 Firewire audio interface. The new device has onboard DSP that can process effects and route signals using a virtual mixer. This means it can be used without being connected to a computer. The 828 Mark III, as it's called, also has a pair of ADAT optical inputs and outputs, boosting its channel count to 28 in and 30 out. You'll find more details in this month's Digital Performer Technique in Sound on Sound magazine. UK audio expert Sontronics have launched a new preamp called the Chimera, which can take line, mic and instrument signals. What's interesting about this is its so-called hybrid nature. The Chimera has solid state and tube input stages, so you can choose your mode depending on the material you're recording. Visit Sontronics.com for further information. An American company called Kelly Concepts came to our attention at the NAMM show where they were showing a device called the Shoe. It's a bass drum mic mounting device that's shaped like a horseshoe and is suspended with rubber cords from the shell of a bass drum. It ensures that your bass drum mic is always in the same place and you can even keep your mic on the shoe inside the drum so you don't have to worry about setting up a mic stand every time you set up. More information can be found at www.kellyshu.com. Mackie have announced some new products that will appeal to the more budget-conscious gear buyer. There are two new mixers in the VLZ3 range, the 402 and 802, and there is a new line of active monitors which comprises two products, the MR5 and the MR8. Keep your eyes peeled for forthcoming SOS reviews of the new gear. The latest incarnation of the Akai MPC sampling workstation is the 5000, the company's new flagship production machine. It's got 16 of the trademark MPC trigger pads and a bank of assignable knobs and sliders, but also has a hard drive built in that lets you record up to 8 tracks of audio at once. Surf to akaipro.com for more information. Finally, Olympus have made a good impression with their first pro audio product, the LS10. It's a portable recorder with an all-metal body and built-in condenser mics that's due to cost just £250 in the UK when it hits the shops. For more information on this and all other news items, check out the What's News section of Sound on Sound magazine or visit the SOS news pages at soundonsound.com forward slash news. Now, it's over to Paul and Hugh for more of what they saw at the NAMM show. This is the Sound on Sound podcast. Hello, I'm Paul White. One of the um, things at the show that did seem to be uh, popular amongst different manufacturers was coming up with room correction software. Now, I've often thought that correcting rooms with EQ was a bit of a cop-out, but some of these actually look quite promising, providing you don't use them as a substitute for uh, regular acoustic treatment. Would you agree with that, Hugh? Yeah, I think so. It's It's been one of those technologies that's been developing over a very long time, 30 or 40 years, I suppose, now. I think it, it starts off as a way of trying to improve speaker performance and then it gradually evolved and developed into dealing with the way speakers interact with the room to compensate for the sort of base end anomalies. And now as the technology has improved further, we can now start moving in towards some of the uh, room problems itself and start to deal with some of those electronically. 
But surely it can only be valid for one position in the room, or you would think? Uh, it depends on frequencies to a large extent, I think. But yeah, they are, they are limited. I mean, if you're going to measure at a particular point in the room, then you're going to correct for that point. And if you go somewhere else in the room, then obviously those corrections won't be valid anymore. Um, but some of the systems are very clever in the way they approach that. Yes, well, so far we've seen the KRK Ergo, which combines hardware and software in a, in a nice convenient package, which also doubles as an audio interface. The software-only solution from IK Multimedia. And yesterday, I think you brought to our attention something called the Trinov Optimizer. Yes, I, I used the IK Multimedia stuff um, a while ago, and I was quite impressed with, with the way that worked and how well it it, uh, it seemed to cure some, not all problems, but some problems it seemed to cure very well. Um, but it's a relatively cheap product, and I wondered just what the state of the art was. So um, I got in touch with a company called uh, SRP Trinov, who do a, a machine called the Optimizer. And that seems to be pretty much the leading state of the art. And it's a hugely, hugely powerful machine. Incredibly expensive as well, it has to be said. Um, but I've got that one uh, working on my system at the moment. And I have to say, I really am astonished at what it can do. So this seems to be a growth area that may have some validity for the home studio. Yes, I think so. Um, I mean, it's a very, it's a very processing-intensive uh, thing to have to do. This particular machine, the, the optimizer, the Trinov optimizer. Uh, uses an entire PC just to do the, the signal processing, and it's a very, very optimised machine. It's, it's running a stripped-down operating system, uh, and the entire processor is just doing this room optimization stuff. So it, it is very intensive. They do a, a Hi-Fi version, um, which is running on a DSP chip inside various high-end Hi-Fi boxes, um, and that can only do about a third of what this full box does. So it is very, very processor intensive but obviously technology is improving all the time and the understanding is developing all the time and i think this is an area which uh, is just beginning to come of age well certainly i can see applications in rooms where there's no space or facility to put in conventional base trapping you could even out the worst of the humps and the bumps at the low end to a degree i think you can uh, you can sort out bumps quite easily uh, filling in gaps is more of, more of an issue, largely because speaker systems have a limited amount of headroom and you just can't keep cranking up more and more base end to fill in cancellation. So that it'll never replace proper room treatment completely, but it will help to resolve little issues in rooms that can't quite be optimised easily. It'll be very useful if you're going to unfamiliar rooms or rooms that are very difficult acoustically to get right anyway. Well, let's watch this space. The other thing that caught my eye at the show was the Spectrosonics steam engine, as they call it, which is a piece of software... It's essentially a synthesizer engine developed by Spectrosonics, which is capable of all the different conventional synthesis styles from FM, analog emulations, granular, that kind of thing. But it can also process samples in, in an extremely complex way. So they're coming up with a, an instrument based on this thing called Omnisphere. That's going to be released in September. The time delay is because they've got 50 gigabytes of library material and they've got to apply metadata to every single sample before they can use it. And talking of engines, East-West Quantum Leap have developed a new play engine for their sample-based virtual instruments. This is called, appropriately enough, the Play Engine. They've already released Goliath under that format. Storm Drum 2 has come out. There's a full review in our April issue of Sound on Sound. And before too long, they'll also be releasing Forbidden Planet. And now it's over to Hugh, who's going to tell you a little bit about the new generation of stereo handheld recorders. As Chris mentioned in the in sort of roundup of the news, there's quite a lot of these new portable recorders coming onto the market. We've seen some of the high-end stuff from Fostex uh, and Tascam and people like that, and Sony produced some good machines. The new uh, PCMD50 is, is quite interesting. But they're getting smaller and cheaper all the time. Um, and at NAMM, they launched uh, the Olympus LS10, the Tascam DR1, and the Yamaha Pocket Track. 
and they're all fighting for the same sort of ground with the same sort of facilities. Okay, so these are all essentially stereo handheld recorders with built-in mics and presumably expandable memory so you can record many hours of uncompressed or compressed audio. Pretty much, yeah. I mean, not all of them have expandable memory, but most of them do. With most of them, you can switch the microphones around as well, so they can either be XY or OTF kind of setups. Uh, you can plug in external microphones as well, um, and they're, they're easy to use. What are we going to be using these for mainly, apart from bootlegging concerts, of course? Well, that's the question, isn't it? Um, ambient recording, sketching down musical ideas without having to boot up your computer... Most of them have a USB port on as well, so you can just plug it straight into the computer and download directly. One of the useful things I think you could use these for is, is to replace um, your backup formats, whether you do that to CDR or DAT or something like that. Uh, they could be very good little backup recorders, um, and they're so small and convenient, you could use them as a dictation machine as well. So if you wanted to make a log of your hardware setups and stuff, you could just you know, read into the machine all your various settings and store it with the audio files. So that's very cheap instant recall. Absolutely. One product range that did attract a lot of attention at the NAMM show was the Euphonics Artist Series of Moving Fader Door Controllers. This comprises the MC Mix and the forthcoming MC Control. These connect to your computer via Ethernet and provide control over most major doors using Euphonics Yukon software or the Huey protocol. The technology is derived from their MC Pro and the software automatically switches between active doors without the need for user intervention. Both units are priced to be attractive to the home studio owner and we have a full review of the MC Mix in the April issue of Sound on Sound. But sadly it's not all good news this month. No it's not. We've, we heard the news that uh, the Townhouse Studios in London is closing and all of its equipment is being sold off. So if you want to buy some, some classic vintage gear, I suppose, then you could say it's good news. But for the industry, I think it's definitely sad. So for those not familiar with Townhouse, what's the history behind that? Because I believe it is one of our really established studios. Yes, it is. Uh, it was started by Richard Branson of Virgin back in the 70s. Um, and then it got taken over when Virgin joined uh, the EMI group. Um, and then in, I think it was 2002, somewhere around there, the Sanctuary Group took it over but um, they've been trying to cut their costs as, as most of these big companies are having to do at the moment and um, basically decided to, to sell it off and nobody would buy it so it's closing so if you do want to bid for the equipment where should you go uh, well everything's going to be uh, listed online by the auctioneers which is a company called mjq so if you go to www.mjq.co.uk uh, towards the end of April, it should all be listed online there. And then the auction itself is going to happen at the studios between the 7th and 9th of May. Uh, and I think it's going to be pretty pretty busy. They're selling everything from SSL consoles right down to microphones, monitoring loudspeakers. There are even some vinyl cutting lathes going up on the on the list. So it's um, going to be some impressive stuff. Sound advice. Thanks, guys. Next up, we're going to answer some of your questions. If you'd like your question to be answered here on the podcast, send us an email with your name and query to soundadvice at soundonsound.com. Don't forget that our forum at soundonsound.com forward slash forum is always open and is frequented by a huge number of very knowledgeable people. Steve Burnley from Maine in the US has a bit of a dilemma. He's doing a live recording of a band with close mic drums, bass, guitars, keyboards and three vocalists, but he only has an 8-channel recorder, although he has a decent-sized mixer. Uh, what makes it tricky is that he wants to be able to mix the recording at a later stage. How do you suggest he goes about it? Ah, well, this takes us back to the old days when we all had to have four-track recorders and try to get everything right. I think if I had eight tracks, I would try to treat um, 
everything like a subgroup so i'd produce a mix that sounded right in stereo on the mixer and then divide the important components into eight subgroups record those onto the eight track and then balance them up afterwards of course you can't get to everything that way but you could for example keep the lead vocal onto one track because that's a really important part you'd probably want at least a couple of tracks for the drums maybe even three if you can afford to have kick snare and overheads the majority of the back line, apart from soloists, you could mix down to one or two tracks in stereo. So I think if you were pretty careful, you could do it. But the trick is to get the mix sounding correctly balanced in stereo before you start subgrouping. That way you won't be wishing that you could rebalance things that are inside the subgroups. Yeah, I think I'd agree. There's no way you can do a full remix on this. You'd need you know, 18, 20 tracks or whatever. Uh, and you've only got the eight. So I'd agree with Paul. Basically, you approach it like a stereo mix and then split out a couple of the the sources that you, you're worried about having to rebalance separately later, which might be obviously the vocals, the snare drum maybe, um, possibly the guitars if there's some complicated leads you've got to mix between, um, that kind of thing. So basically record a stereo mix of most of it and then use the extra tracks for the things that you're going to have to worry about later. John Townsend from Bristol asks, I've read many Studio SOS articles in your magazine, but I've never been able to find the materials you refer to in my local hardware shop. Where do you source the materials for acoustic treatment? Well, a lot of the DIY treatments that we prescribe in the magazine use um, materials like rock wool or glass fibre. In the UK, rock wool seems to be quite easy to obtain. If you go to most builders' merchants or these big DIY superstores such as Wix and Homebase, we've only found the really dense stuff at Wix so far off the shelf. Uh, If you go to somewhere like Homebase, you'll find the loft insulation fibreglass that comes in rolls and maybe rock wool that comes in rolls, but that's really too soft and fluffy for uh, effective acoustic treatment. Yeah, often it goes by the name of mineral wool. I mean, the the trade name for most applications is rock wool, but you'll find it listed as mineral wool. And it's sold as heavy insulation, dense insulation that goes in walls. Yes, uh, uh, the stuff that we use, I think, is made for cavity wall insulation, and it comes in 600 by 1200 mil sheets of various thicknesses. Now, for making base traps, uh, the important thing is the density of the material, which should be about six pounds per cubic foot. If it's for making mid-high absorbers, then half that, £3 per cubic foot, is the right sort of density. You can recognise the high-density stuff because it's almost like Weetabix in its consistency. Uh, you can hold a slab up and it's, it's fairly self-supporting, it doesn't sag very much at all. The slightly thinner stuff used for the high-mid traps is, is a little bit floppy but still retains its shape, whereas the loft insulation is just like candy floss. You'll find some of it's got a backing, either a foil or a paper backing. Um, and you can make traps with that, but it's kind of a more specialised application. Um, so for the kind of general purpose traps that, that we uh, talk about in the Studio SOS sessions, you just want the ordinary plane. It's important that when you do use this kind of material that you also cover it with some open weave fabric because you don't want the fibres and the dust escaping into the atmosphere. And it also looks a lot better too. But it does need to be an open weave fabric. Uh, in other words, one that you can blow through or breathe through. Otherwise the sound won't get through it and into the trap. For the benefit of our United States readers, who probably don't come across rock wool or mineral wool even for that matter very often, uh, the recommended material there, Owens Corning 703 glass fibre insulation, which weighs in at £3 per cubic foot, or the 705 material, which is £6 per cubic foot. This seems to work just as well, and is specified by a lot of acousticians in the States. This is the Sound on Sound At the end of February, we went down to Digital Village's Clapham facility to the DV Pro Audio Expo. As well as looking around all the new toys and talking to lots of familiar faces, I also managed to put on a little seminar showing some production techniques and tricks using Logic 8 and also hosted a Q&A session. So, if you didn't make it, here's what you missed. 
I'm here with Jeremy Lumsden, Marketing Manager at Digital Village. Jeremy, what's happening today? Today we're um, hosting a Pro Audio Expo in our Clapham facility and um, try and get as many of the new products here as possible and tie that in with masterclasses. So who's here at the show? I think one of the biggest attractions is the Euphonics guys. The Euphonics MC Mix has just landed uh, on our shelves and we're working with them to show that product. Fantastic. Who else then? Uh, we've got the Akai debut of the MPC 5000. Andy Max here doing an overview of the whole MPC family. And uh, he's sharing the room with Niels Carsten from KRK, who's demonstrating the Ergo. We've got Yamaha and Korg sharing a stage, battling it out of who makes the best synths. And then in Studio 2, we have uh, Robin Kelly's flown over from the States to uh, demonstrate. Sonar 7. We've got an Apple Logic Masterclass. Steinberg are doing a Cubase Masterclass. Um, then the Gateway uh, School of Recording are hosting a lecture. Royalties, Copyright and You. James Bernard uh, from Propeller Heads is here giving a Masterclass. Then uh, you've got another Gateway lecture of Dispelling the Myth of Fixing it in the Myth. Uh, we have Genelec, Universal Audio and Sonics doing demonstrations um, over the two days. So how many people are here today? Um, 550 people have registered for the event. We're estimating that 70% of the registrations will arrive. We're also uh, offering many of the products at prices significantly below the street price because we've worked proactively with the manufacturers to reach a price point which uh, makes people excited. Great, see you next year. Um, or possibly before. We're planning a, a another Pro Audio Expo uh, for the autumn. We're also planning a guitar expo, a drum expo. And the idea really is to start hosting events on a fairly regular basis in association with the manufacturers to help people with their, their purchasing decision, if I'm being frank. Hello, my name's Adrian Hogg. I'm here with DigiDesign, showing the Air Virtual Instruments and Eleven, which is the new guitar amp sim plugin. Um, I'm just going to play a few things now. This particular one is a DigiDesign custom setting, although there are um, models of various well-known uh, amp manufacturers. Hi, uh, yeah, David Atkinson from M-Audio. Today's expo is going to be a great opportunity for us to showcase some of the cool new products that we launched at NAMM back in January. It's the first time that we've got the new Profire 2626 flagship Firewire interface um, over in the UK, along with our new BX8A and 5A Deluxe powered monitors. And we're hoping there'll be a lot of people here to come and try them out. Hi, this is Rob Jones from Focusrite Innovation, uh, and I'm here at the DV Expo. Uh, and the main products we're showing here today are the Focusrite ISA-1, a brand new single channel boutique uh, preamp. Uh, on, the, on the innovation side we have the Nocturne, which is the most affordable uh, Automap Universal product to date. This is the Sound on Sound podcast. In the April issue of Sound on Sound, Features Editor Sam Ingalls reviews the E-Squared Diesa. This is an intriguing new product from EOSIS and here's Sam to tell you more about it. Hello, I'm Sam Ingalls, Sound on Sound Features Editor. People often say to me, it must be great working at Sound on Sound. And it is, but what they don't realise is that it turns you into the kind of person who gets excited about DSers. Not all DSers, obviously, but I have to admit I am quite excited by the new E-squared DSer from EOSIS. 
So what makes this different from other DS's? Well, let's give it something to work on, and I'll explain. I'm already using the brightest condenser mic I can find in the SOS gear cupboard. So if I sing something like this... Six fat sausages sizzle on the stove! The sibilants are pretty intrusive, even before I add any processing. And if I want to use it in the context of a track, it gets much worse, because I'm going to want to add reverb, and EQ, and compression. Six fat sausages sizzle on the stove! Ouch. Now, a conventional de-esser is basically a compressor with a heavily filtered sidechain. That can help, but if you push it too far, it becomes lispy and unnatural. Six fat sausages sizzle on the stove! E-squared de-esser is different. It actually chops the input signal up into two separate paths and processes these paths completely independently. So if we listen to the first path, we'll hear just the sibilance. And if we listen to the second path, we'll hear just the voiced sounds. Six fat sausages sizzle on the stove! What this means is that on the one hand, you can apply very aggressive filtering to the sibilant path and know that you won't be damaging the rest of the vocal. And on the other hand, you can add high frequency boost to the voiced path without making the sibilants worse. Overall, this allows you to reduce the hissiness and spittiness of sibilants much more before the processing becomes noticeable. However, it goes even further than that potentially, because if you want to, you can copy your vocal to a second track and have one track for sibilants and one track for voiced sounds. That way, you could avoid having a spitty reverb by sending to the reverb only from the voice track. Six fat sausages sizzle on the stove! Or, you could squash the hell out of the voice track with a compressor and leave the sibilance alone. Exciting! Or have I just worked here too long? Read the review in the April issue. Decide for yourself. Six fat sausages sizzle on the stove! This is the Sound on Sound podcast. Thanks, Sam. Also in the April issue is an interesting feature called Phase Demystified, which guides you through the subject of phase and shines some light on how a better understanding of it can improve your results. Here's SOS contributor Mike Senior to tell you a bit more. You're recording drums. You've got your overhead sounding great, but you want to bring the snare forward a bit, so you mix in its close mic. And it makes the snare sound rubbish. So you solo the snare mic to see what the problem is, but it doesn't sound too bad on its own. What's up with that? If this sounds familiar, then you've probably already suffered at the hands of phase cancellation. This is a really sneaky problem. Hard to trace, but it can make mincemeat of the frequency response of your audio signals at every stage of the production. It can strike while you're programming a backing track with samples and synths. It can trash even the most straightforward of recordings. It can make mixing completely counterintuitive. It can even stay hidden until after you've mixed, so you only discover that your sound totally falls apart on some playback systems after you've printed up a bunch of CDs, or when you get your first play on the telly. At SOS, we're always trying to help you get the best sound possible, so this month I've tackled the problem of phase cancellation head-on, with a special feature explaining what it is, why it happens, and how you can take the sting out of it. What's more... I'll also be showing you how you can transform it into an enormously powerful ally, if you know what you're doing. This is the Sound on Sound podcast. The April issue of Sound on Sound is in the shops from the 20th of March. 
Remember that you can read the magazine online at soundonsound.com, where you'll also find up-to-date news and videos, including some from the Frankfurt Music Messe. Thanks for listening to the Sound on Sound podcast. Join us next month for more from the SOS team.